For those of you who missed last week, uh, we had Phil Riley from Tear Fund who was on video and he uh, shared the good news of the gospel and he was telling us what's going on around the world and how we can use Tear Fund as a blessing to relieve hunger in Ethiopia. And I got a text on Sunday afternoon from one of my friends and he said, Dave, I know what it's going to take for revival to happen at Ellerslie. And I said, oh, please tell me. And he goes, you need to start preaching with a Scottish accent and everything will change around here. We'll see. Most of my accents end up sounding more like I'm from Brooklyn or from Eastern Europe, so that's going to be a far cry away. But we are going to try something a little bit new today. If you enjoy taking notes, I'm going to have about three times the amount of slides I normally have. Uh, someone's going to walk and work in the back with a laser pointer, and so I hope that you can follow along and see what God is doing, uh, not just right now, but over the course of all of Israel's history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for courageous community and the joy that we had in, in walking through the one another passages of scripture. Thank you for Philip Riley and what's happening with Tear Fund and the opportunity we have to engage with them to see hunger partially alleviated in Ethiopia. And thank you for what's happening with Operation Christmas Child. And when we think that one out of every seven shoe boxes somebody comes to faith in Christ is incredible. God, I pray that we would continue to do great work here, that we would see life change happen, not only around the world, but right here at Ellerslie in Southwest Edmonton and for your glory. So God, I pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up. And while we might be tackling a little bit more difficult subject matter than normal, that it would be clear because your Holy Spirit is working through all of us. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name, amen. God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. Bill McAlpine was one of my professors in Bible college and was kind enough to mentor me while I was in my final few years there and my first few years of being a, a full-time pastor. And he would use this phrase regularly in our interactions. He would remind me when things were going tough and it was hard for me to find a job. Dave, God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. When I was single and most of my friends were married or in committed relationships, and I'd go and I'd just bemoan to him, he would say the same thing. And when I would go through those occasional dark nights of the soul where it just feels like God isn't answering your prayers and life is difficult, he would continually remind me, Dave, God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. This idea comes from a passage in Isaiah 43. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And we are reminded that God is always at work. The last two years have been incredibly difficult. Who would have thought two years ago today that church would be shut down for a number of weeks? Who would have thought two years ago today that we would be restricted of having friends, family, and neighbors inside our homes? Who would have thought two years ago today we would need to show a piece of paper to sit down at a restaurant or to go to a movie? But God is always at work. He's always doing something. I was walking through the foyer a couple weeks ago and I overheard a couple grandparents talking to one another and one of the grandparents said, I feel like I've missed out on a year of my grandchild's life. And so my wife and I thought about that and we said, well, we don't want our grandparents to feel the same way. So we took our three kids, threw them at our grandparents and ran away to the mountains last week so they could have time together <laughs> and reconnect. We are committed to relationships. The last year has been really tough. Whether I was part of my small group or talking with many of you in the, uh, in the foyer or on Zoom, people were saying, Dave, I don't know if I'm going to have a job or I don't know where I'm gonna find a new job. 
A year goes by and things have changed dramatically and people are saying to me, Dave, I am so busy, I'm working more hours than I've ever worked before. Last year, people were wondering, what is community going to look like when we can't gather in a building together? Now we're saying, how do we re-engage people? And it's the reason we had the sermon series we just did. Last year, we were experimenting with different online models. This year, we're wrestling with, how do we ignite that spiritual fervor? And so whether it's Tear Fund, whether it's Operation Christmas Child, whether it's one of our strategic directions of being people of influence who invite, include, and invest in others, we want to be a church that makes disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. There's this really depressing passage of scripture, arguably the saddest one in all of the Bible. It's in Psalm 88. And the author is going through this incredibly difficult time in his life. His family has abandoned him. He no longer has friends. He's cracking at the seams with his mental health. Depression is setting in. God's not answering his prayers. He's surrounded by enemies. It's just brutal. And when you read Psalm 88, you kind of think, okay, but the ending's gonna be good. And it's not. The last verse of Psalm 88 says, you have taken my companions and loved ones from me. My closest friend is darkness. The saddest psalm in the scripture ends with darkness. But there's also something really special about this passage. And what I think is so special is that we actually have it. That the psalmist, despite all of this difficult, that's a difficulty that's going on in his life, continues to talk to God. He continues to share the challenges and the heartbreak and the heartache that's taking place. And it's a reminder for all of us, and you'll hear me repeat it a few times this morning, God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. For the last two years, it's been really difficult for us. And life is shifting in ways that we didn't think it ever would. For the people of Israel 2,500 years ago, this would have seemed like a blessing. An entire generation taken from their homeland and brought into exile. Our government is saying to us, for the safety of our people and to ease the burden of the medical system, we're going to ask that no large group gatherings happen at this time. The government during exile says, we no longer want you to worship. In fact, we are going to destroy your temple to such a degree that there will not be a single stone rested on another. And we're going to assimilate you so you become part of our culture and your culture disappears. But behind the scenes, God is at work. This is a story of renewal. This is a story about the power of God. This is the book of Ezra. If you have your Bibles with you, I certainly welcome you to open them up to first uh, to Ezra chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew racks in front of you, or if you have a phone or device, you can certainly download the app. The book of Ezra is found right after first and second Chronicles. Uh, if you have a table of contents, you can certainly look that up. Now, if you're new to church, this is normally when I would kind of unpack a little bit of the context, a little bit of the history, so we can come in and go, what does something 2,500 years ago have to do with me? But today we're going to do something that I've never done before. And the bulk of our message is going to be the history of Israel. And I hope, and it's my prayer, that as you look at the history of Israel, you begin to see what God is doing through all of these phases and stages. Before we begin, this is 2 Chronicles chapter 36. If you have a Bible with you, it might be on the same page as Ezra, starting in verse 15. The Lord... The God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. 
But the Israelites kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Verse 17. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. You'll see in your scriptures, Chaldeans and Babylonians are the exact same people who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill the 70 years. The nation of Israel has been taken into exile. But as we have said a few times already this morning, God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. And if you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll find that the last two verses of Second Chronicles and the first two verses of Ezra are word for word identical. This is Ezra chapter one, verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of the Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So what exactly is God doing behind the scenes? I hope you enjoy this history. If you enjoy taking notes, I hope you have a hand cramp or your thumbs are worn out. As we so often do, let's start in the book of, uh, of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which we refer to so regularly, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. He created man and woman, named them Adam and Eve. And we see this in Genesis 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, says God, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, God is saying to Adam and Eve, I want you to bring my rule, my authority to all of earth. This is your role. This is what I'm asking you to do. I so appreciate how Aaron Messner describes this. God's people living in God's place with God's presence under the authority of God's word, enjoying the fullness of God's blessing in their life. It doesn't get any better than this. Life is perfect. Adam and Eve have a perfect relationship with God. They can talk to him. They can walk with him. They can enjoy his presence fully. All God asks is that you obey one simple law. There's a tree over in that garden. And that one particular tree I'm asking that you not eat of its fruit. Enter the devil. And he, in the form of a snake, has questions for Adam and Eve about the goodness of God. Oh, sure, life is pretty darn great, but don't you think God is holding back something from you? Right now you're walking with God, but don't you want to become like God? 
as one of the podcasters I listen to regularly says, don't try to be happier than happy. But much like us, Adam and Eve believed that there was something the world had to offer that was way better than what God has to offer. They eat the fruit and God curses them and all of creation. The rest of scripture from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22 is a big story made up of little stories of pointing to the redemption of Jesus Christ of all of creation and one day coming back. One more layer that you might find interesting. It's not that God just kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. He actually kicked them out in a particular direction. He kicked them out east of the garden. A couple chapters later, we're going to run into uh, Cain and Abel, and Cain eventually kills his brother. In what direction does he go? He goes east. And this whole idea of going east is synonymous with the idea of departing from God. It's why the temple gates for the, uh, the temple of Jerusalem is on the east side of the building. So that when the people come to temple, they recognize they are coming back to the God who set them up. Fast forward to Genesis 12 and God's blessing begins through the person of Abraham. And this is the promise that we hear. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The rest of Genesis is filled with the origin story of God's people. We have Abraham, who has Isaac, who has Jacob, who has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel, but they don't have a place to call home. And yet God continues to be at work. Exodus, the second book of the Bible, opens up and we see the nation of Israel in captivity to the Egyptians. Some people believe there were about a million Israelites at this time. And they're wondering, God, when are you going to rescue us? We've heard the stories. We believe there is something more. Are you at work in what's taking place? The first 12, 14 chapters of Exodus, God begins to flex his muscles and he shows the Egyptians just how powerful he is. And we begin to see that promise of the garden coming back, that God's people are now with God's presence and they arrive across the Red Sea and at the foot of a mountain called Mount Sinai where they're going to receive the Ten Commandments. But just like Adam and Eve, God's blessing for Israel is still conditioned by obedience. Shortly after receiving the Ten Commandments, shortly after receiving all these other laws, God's people say to themselves, you know what we could do right now to really show God how much we love him? We could take all of our gold and build a golden calf and bow down to that. God's not terribly impressed. And for this reason and a number of other reasons, he says, you're not ready to enter my promised land. And so I want you to wander around the desert for 40 years. Eventually, the season of Israel's history comes to an end and Joshua leads God's people into the promised land where they remove their enemies and begin to make a home for themselves. But rather than being grateful for what they have, they look around what other nations have and they go, we want a king for ourselves. This theocracy, this idea of God in control and randomly sending judges to rule over us, that's not working. Israel could probably use a lesson or two intact. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. And surprisingly, God says, okay, sure. And 3,000 years ago, at about 1050 BC, a king by the name of Saul is anointed as king of Israel. And he's a complete dud. 
But then David comes along. And David is considered one of the greatest kings of all Israel history. David and his son Solomon enter into Israel and we see the pinnacle of history. We see the richness and the wealth. And you can read about this uh, First and Second Samuel and First Kings. It is incredible how rich and plentiful and powerful the nation of, uh, of Israel has become. You can see on the map behind me that they've taken over most of the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And you have this area about 150 kilometers long would fit between South Edmonton and Red Deer. And you once again have God's people living in God's place with God's presence under the authority of God's word, enjoying God's blessing in their life. But just like Adam and Eve, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, thinks, "Mm, I can be happier than happy. And he decides that he is going to show Israel, he is going to show this united kingdom just how great and how powerful he is. One of my favorite lines about Rehoboam is he says to his counselors, you think my dad is impressive, my finger is thicker than his waist. And the kingdom falls apart. And the United Kingdom falls into two. We have Israel in the north with a new capital of Samaria, Judah in the south where Jerusalem remains the capital. And this is where things get really bad. Remember, God's blessing for Israel is still conditioned on obedience. Of the 19 kings following Rehoboam, do you know how many were good? Not a single one. Every single one of them, without exception, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And yet there's this constant refrain in the Old Testament. The Lord our God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. He gave them 19 kings, nearly 200 years from the end of Solomon's reign until when he decided Israel was ready for exile. Assyria, the world's first superpower, destroys Samaria, the northern capital of Israel, and is annexed by the Assyrian Empire in about 722 BC. We read in 2 Kings verse 7, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh the king. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices the kings of Israel had introduced. The first map we looked at showed the United Kingdom of Israel at its peak. It was little more than a sliver along the eastern side of the Mediterranean. This map is zoomed out and shows the expanse of the Assyrian Empire, the first truly world power in the entire world. After seizing cities among the coastal plain, the king of Assyria comes down through the coast, capturing not only the Philistines, but all the fortified cities of Judah. So it's not just Israel, but Judah he's attacking. You can read about this interaction in 2 Kings. It's fascinating. If you're not reading the Bible right now, pick up Samuel, pick up Kings. It'll give you a great history to Israel as we walk through Ezra. Hezekiah, the king of Judah, is terrified by this superpower. And so he thinks, you know what, maybe if I pay off this king a tribute, I could be one of his vassal kings, he'll leave me alone. And so the king of Assyria at this time says, yeah, absolutely, why don't you do that? Take all the money out of the palace, take all the money out of the temple, even strip down the doors and the doorknobs so I can have all your gold, all your, all your silver, and you'll be fine. And so Hezekiah, one of the good kings of Israel, decides, you know what, this is all right, at least I can keep the temple at this time. But as soon as the king of Assyria receives all the wealth, he says, yeah, I changed my mind. Now I'm going to attack, and you have no resources to defend yourself. 
in mockery of Israel and her God. We read this in 2 Kings 18. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Hezekiah goes into his inner chamber and he just cries out to God. Hezekiah is one of the good kings of Judah. And he says, God, will you rescue us? Will you, by the power and by the might of your hand, do something to the Assyrians so we might continue to flourish here in the southern kingdom? We read in 2 Kings chapter 19 that that night after Hezekiah prayed, the angel of the Lord went out to put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, they were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria at that time, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. For those of you who have been around church a little while, you might be like, Nineveh, that sounds familiar. This is why the prophet Jonah didn't want to go. It'd be like a Jew heading into Nazi Germany. Not a lot of fun. After Judah stood strong in the face of the world's first superpower, her kings slowly started turning bad. After Hezekiah, six of the next seven kings of, Israel, of Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. But despite seeing all this warning, Despite the prophet saying, turn back to God, despite people coming to them and saying, you have to turn back to God or your kingdom too will be annexed. Despite seeing it happen in Israel and Samaria, the king said, "Mm, God's made a promise, we'll be okay. While all this was taking place, there was a shift in the balance of world powers. Going back to this map of Assyria, you'll see on the right-hand side, Babylon, and just above that, Media. At around 650 BC, the king of Assyria decided to make his little brother the governor of Babylon. And I'm not sure what your house was like growing up or what your kids are like, but at my house, sibling rivalry is a real thing. We can't even play Mario Kart anymore because they get too upset with each other. And so little brother, the governor of Babylon, goes to big brother, the king of all of Assyria, and says, I want my independence. I'm starting a civil war. By this time, the Assyrians were able to put down the revolt, but the empire was weakened beyond repair, and Babylon gained her independence in 626 BC. A couple years later, there's a new king in Babylon who is quite impressed with his army commander, a name you might be familiar with, Nebuchadnezzar. Knowing the Assyrians were running on fumes, Babylon made a pact with Media, remember that nation that's just above them, also on the right side of the map, to take down Assyria and split the land. Only 15 years after receiving her independence, Babylon took down the mighty Assyria and gave the land of the north to the Medes and took the rest for themselves. But even after the fall of Israel and Babylon becoming the world's second great empire, Judah continues to see almost 200 years of independence and some real flourishing. Some of the great kings in Judah's history are Hezekiah and Josiah. Josiah was doing this in the midst of the Babylonian empire. But as we read at the outset of our message from the end of 2 Chronicles, the last few kings mocked God's messengers, scoffed at his prophets, and Nebuchadnezzar, Now the king of the Babylonians has taken people into captivity 
in 586 BC. The best and brightest of all the Jews go to work for King Nebuchadnezzar. The temple, the treasury, is all taken back to Babylon. The temple was burned to the ground, the walls of Jerusalem turned to rubble. It looks like all is lost. But God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something and nothing surprises him. Jeremiah chapter 25, the whole land Israel shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. A couple chapters later in uh, Jeremiah 32, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back. I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And prophet Isaiah writes this in his book, chapter 45. I have stirred him, Cyrus, up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free. I know there was a lot to take in there, but I hope you enjoyed it, because now we're at the really good part. The book of Daniel is written while the Jews are in exile. In chapter 1, verse 1, we learn that Nebuchadnezzar is still king of Babylon and is one of the most successful kings in all of history, but no one lives forever, and after nearly 50 years, his son takes over as the king of Babylon. But much like Rehoboam, who thought, I'm so much wiser than my dad, Marduk, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, thinks the same thing. He didn't like the politics, I'm going to change them. Didn't like the God dad worship, I'm going to worship a different God. Didn't like his cabinet, I'm going to bring in brand new people. And do you know what that does to you in the 6th century BC? Gets you killed. Nebuchadnezzar takes over as king of Babylon. But he's way more interested in religion than politics. And between the infighting of Marduk and the lack of concern by Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon is weakened and set for downfall. While the fighting is going on in Babylon, somebody starts to rise up power in Persia, a king by the name of Cyrus. And he starts to make a name for himself, and Nabonidus decides, well, it would be way better for me to be friends with Cyrus than for me to fight against him. So first, Cyrus takes over as king of the Medo-Persia kingdom in 550 BC, creating an incredibly powerful empire. Then he conquers Asia Minor, then he moves into India with great success, and at this time, the infighting in Babylon is at an all-time high. And the people are so upset with King Nabonidus that Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persians, is invited to be part of the Babylonian Empire. For those of you familiar with the book of Daniel, do you remember that really great passage in chapter 5 where the handwriting shows up on the wall? We read in 525, this is the inscription that was written, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Parson. And the king of Babylon at that time says, go get Daniel. He knows how to figure this stuff out. So Daniel comes down to the party and he says, Meaning means God has numbered the days of your reign and he has brought it to an end. 
Tekel, you have weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. One, this story's fascinating. Two, it's amazing to me because I always read that last bit of chapter five and the beginning of chapter six and thought, how do the Persians get in there so fast? They were already in the room. Darius, who took over the kingdom, was Cyrus's son's close friend. So now Cyrus has the entire Medo-Persian empire, the Babylonian empire, and he asked his son's friend Darius to lead over the city of Babylon. That's why we can read in Daniel 6, 28. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And jumping to chapter nine, in the first year of his, Darius's reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth. And so Daniel, taken in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, worked for King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, the king following that, and now Darius the Mede, also knows Cyrus. And a Jewish historian named Josephus records an account that Daniel takes the prophecy of Isaiah, the one that we read just a couple minutes ago, and shares it with Cyrus. And Daniel, looking at the most powerful man the empire has ever seen, says, my prophet Isaiah, 100 years ago, said that you would set us free and allow us to go back to Jerusalem. To quote the late Paul Harvey, and now you know the rest of the story. The proclamation of Cyrus encouraging the people of Israel to go back to Jerusalem is called the Cyrus Cylinder. It was actually discovered in 1869 AD and currently sits in the British Museum. That was the first two verses. We've got 80 more to go. You ready to be here all afternoon? <laughs> two weeks ago, I said I was going through a dry spell. I went off script, I was just sharing from the heart. And I was talking about the challenging uh, time that I was currently going through, and I knew why I was going through it. September is an extremely busy month for pastors. We have the ministry fair, then we had training day. Uh, I was uh, helping perform a wedding, there was a congregational meeting. I was exhausted. And so I knew after a few weeks of everything that was going on, I was kind of set up for, to hit a bit of a lull. And I don't know if this happens to you, but I was, I was reading the Bible and they just felt like words on a page. I was praying and it felt like my prayers just hit the ceiling and came right back down on my head. I would watch a TV show on Netflix with my wife and it just felt like pictures on a screen and I wasn't even enjoying that. So I set aside the rather academic book I was reading. I picked up a devotional book from my bookshelf and I thought, I just, God, I just want more of you right now. Truthfully, the book isn't well written and I'm not going to recommend it. But he said something that I so deeply needed to hear. He said in the opening chapters, do you really want more of God? Are you actually spending time pursuing God, leaning into God, wanting more of him, or do you just sit on your couch and watch Netflix? I think God was trying to get my attention because this this past week, I went out for lunch with a friend of mine and we started talking about this very same idea. 
I'm not sure what it's like in your house, but my wife and I have cable TV, and we also have a couple streaming services, and so we finished watching a show on Netflix or whatever we were watching, and then turned that off, and the Oilers game was on, and we went into overtime against the Canucks, so you got to watch overtime, and you got to watch the shootout, and suddenly it's 11 o'clock at night, and I'm thinking, God, am I really leaning into you? Near the beginning of the message, I mentioned that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Which direction did he kick him again? East. And Cain killed Abel and he's kicked out east. The Jews are leaving Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. In what direction are they going? They're going back west. It's time for God's people to come back home. But the journey is going to be hard. I know it's probably really small on your screens, but you can see a little red arrow. The direct route would be about 500 miles, but you can't walk through the desert for that length of time. So the route they need to take is 1,000 miles. 1,000 miles with little kids. 1,000 miles with equipment to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. 1,000 miles with your family, walking at a pace of about 10 miles a day. It would have taken approximately four months because you need to rest occasionally to get from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's going to be hard and it's absolutely worth it. And the book that I'm currently reading and the lunch that I had with my friend this past week, it's a reminder to me that if we want our lives to grow in knowledge and understanding and relationship with the amazing person of Jesus, it's going to be hard, but it's absolutely worth it. And I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey. I hope you're in a great place. And if you are, praise God for that. But if you're in a challenging spot, this whole passage, this whole sermon today, I hope is a reminder to you that God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. And God is at work behind the scenes preparing you for this moment and what he has in store for you next. And for the Israelites, you could actually ask them a question. Why are you making this 1,000 mile journey? You hear about a nation going into captivity, a nation going into exile, and you think they're all just slaves. That's not really the case. Many of the Jews flourished and were doing incredibly well. Why would you leave the most prosperous place in the world to return to a pile of rubble? Why would you leave the comfort of everything you know to rebuild a place that you've only heard your grandparents talk about? The only reason you would do that is because you trust in God's promises. Tomorrow we're going to vote. Maybe some of you already have good for you. And we're going to vote on the mayor and town councillors and hot topic buttons like, do we get rid of daylight savings time? And these promises that our town councillors and the mayors make, they can be a little bit vague. I promise to reduce taxes and increase social services. Good for you. No one else has figured out how to do that yet. But not only is God incredibly specific, like if you look at chapter 2, 70 verses of individual names, but we also know he keeps his promises. He kept his promises that if Adam and Eve wouldn't obey, they'd get kicked out of the garden. 
kept his promises that if Israel and Judah didn't obey, they would go into exile. He kept his promise that after 70 years of exile, they would be brought back home. He kept his promise to Adam and Eve that he would one day send somebody from their line, from the line of David, who would sit on the throne forever. He kept his promise that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would crush that serpent with the heel of his foot. He kept his promise that the Holy Spirit would come and work in every single one of our lives. He continues to keep his promise, and he's absolutely specific about the plan he has for every single one of you in this room. A Savior who will be a blessing to all of God's people for all of eternity in the presence of God, in the home Jesus Christ is preparing for us right now, in perfect relationship with one another for the end until the, uh, for all of, (laughs) I can't even say eternity, for all of eternity. Is it going to be hard for the next few years that God has us here? Yeah. But behind the scenes, God is at work. God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something. And he invites us to this spot of renewal. He invites us to take part in what he has in store for us. He invites us to something better because he knows there's something better available for us. The question is, are you going to lean in? Or are you going to be like Adam and Eve who think there's something better? You're going to be like Rehoboam who thinks there's something better. You're going to be like Marduk who thinks there's something better. Or are you going to say, God, I believe that you have what's best for me. I believe, God, that you keep your promises. I believe, God, that you are ultimately specific and that my name is written in the book of life. And I believe you have something so much greater in store for me than this world could ever offer. Are you willing to lean in? And experience the book of Ezra and everything God has for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please forgive us when we think of finding hope and joy and happiness in something that doesn't come from you. Because it's really easy to turn on Netflix, it's really easy to hop on YouTube, it's really easy to just grab a favorite novel. But God, it's harder to spend time with you for, for many of us And so God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would work in us, that you would surround us with great people in the community here at Ellerslie, that you would surround us with small groups and people to serve with and people to laugh with and people to cry with about the challenges we're facing, that we would continue to see life change. We would see change in our own lives as we spend more time with you and with others. We would see more people filling that baptism tank. We would see and love our neighbors so much that we would invite them to church or invite them to Alpha or invite them to youth group and say, come and see what God is doing. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that we would have boldness to go and tell our neighbors and our family members and our coworkers what you are doing and how you are radically transforming lives and that there's something so much better than what this world has to offer. God, we believe the world needs Jesus. And God, your plan is that we would go out and share that good news with others. And while it's certainly helpful to give to tear fund and to fill in shoe boxes, and we're going to do that, God, by the power of your spirit, help us to go out. Help us to lean in, knowing it's going to be hard, that we would see renewal, that we would see revival in this place. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face so brightly shine upon you. And if you're walking through a difficult time, may you be reminded this day that God is never doing nothing. He is always doing something and is at work in your lives and in the lives.